Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Not every Sunday that your controller falls and the batteries fall out. That just happened. So let me see if I can put those in and get this thing working again. It works. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be reflecting on verse 19, and before we read God's word, let's pray. Lord God, you have inspired all scripture for our learning and edification. We pray now that your spirit would open our minds and our hearts to rightly be fed by your word. Please give us gifts of conviction, regeneration, transformation, preservation. Help me, Lord, to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit and to speak as one speaking the very oracles of God. Through Jesus we pray, amen. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says this, Do not quench the Spirit. May God give us ears to hear his word. If I did my math correctly, the first time I asked out my now wife Bethany, I was in the winter of the year 2000. Uh, and I knew virtually immediately that she was the woman I wanted to marry. She was intelligent, godly, committed, attractive, everything I wanted in a wife. Well, the process from getting from there to actually getting married turned out to be considerably more complicated than I anticipated. Uh, first, I had to get Bethany on board, which, as you might imagine, took several months and a good bit of persuasion. Then I had to get my parents on board. That didn't take very long at all. Then finally, I had to get her dad's blessing, which he eventually and graciously gave. We were engaged on December 10th, 2000, and then after that, things really got complicated. We had to pick a date for our wedding and confirm it with the church. Uh, we went through several weeks of premarital counseling with a godly older man. We had to plan out the entire wedding ceremony, picking out colors and cake flavors, tuxedos and bridesmaids' dresses. And obviously, Bethany had to purchase her wedding gown. Well, one of the very final things that we had to do right before our wedding day was to go to the local courthouse and to secure our marriage license. And, you know, at least here in the United States, if you want your marriage official, that's what you need, this formal document that's notarized by a justice of the peace. And I remember that that part of the process was surprisingly technical. Uh, we had to fill out paperwork, which I expected, but then we actually had to swear. We raised our hand and swore that we were not married to any other people anywhere in the world. And then finally, the Justice of the Peace, she did one last thing before she gave us our marriage license. She stamped it with this formal seal and signed it. Now, I want us to think briefly about the purpose of putting a seal on that document. Uh, why did she do that? I mean, we could have been married without it, say she forgot it or something like that. So why did she, and presumably the courthouse that employed her, why did they believe it was important to have some sort of seal on this document? Well, that seal clearly communicated several things. First, it communicated that the marriage license was real. I mean, the seal they used, it wasn't the sort of thing that I could just go to Walmart and buy for myself. It was the official seal of the county of Erie County, Ohio. Additionally, it indicated that this marriage was official. Uh, we don't seal many things much as today as we used to, but that indicated that this was an official marriage license, something to take seriously. And lastly, that seal... I found out it couldn't be replicated. Uh, for one reason or another, over the years, I had to photocopy my marriage license several times. And interestingly, when you photocopy it, the seal doesn't show up. You know, it's just these dents impressed in paper, which obviously a photocopier doesn't reproduce. 
Now, the Bible is emphatic that we who believe on the Lord Jesus have been sealed by God's Holy Spirit. Just like the county clerk sealed our marriage license, so also God seals our souls when we come to Jesus. But what does that really mean? What's the significance of that, especially since this is something we can't see or feel? I mean, you can't just walk up to somebody on the street and see that they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Quite possible that you never even heard of this concept until this morning. So if there's something we can't see, can't feel, and maybe never even heard about, what's its significance? What does it mean? This, by God's grace, is what we're going to be talking about this morning in our next sermon on the Holy Spirit. Well, it's with this that we continue this little mini-series, and I'm going to have to stop calling it a mini-series fairly soon. Uh, you know, five parts, and, and truth be told, there are a couple more coming. Uh, that, that's not much of a mini-series, but be that as it may. We came to 1 Thessalonians 5.19, which says, Do not quench the Spirit. It's my contention, however, that most believers don't understand enough about the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He does, to put that verse into practice. Um, I think it's because we're over-scared of charismatics that we intentionally avoid talking about the Holy Spirit. But by doing that, we miss a huge block of teaching that the New Testament has about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. In this series, we began by talking about the way in which the Holy Spirit is a divine person with whom you should seek to have a relationship. He's the third person of the Trinity. And when you trusted in Jesus, he began dwelling in you. What that means is that you should figure out some way whereby you align your life to his and follow his leading. Additionally, in this series, we've talked about the way in which the Spirit's ministries, they, they amped up and changed dramatically in the day of Pentecost. Uh, there are things the Spirit's always been doing from you know, the creation of humanity, but on the day of Pentecost, with Jesus exalted to the right hand of God, there are certain ministries he began doing only then. And chief among these are baptizing all believers and indwelling all believers. From there, we've talked about the Spirit's ministry of conviction and the Spirit's ministry of regeneration, both vital, essential ministries, which I hope and pray you've experienced. That's just a quick summary of where we've been. And again, I'd encourage you, listen to these messages. You know, I don't consider myself a particularly eloquent or powerful, powerful preacher, but the Bible's teaching on the Holy Spirit is so essential and often neglected that it would be to your advantage to study what the Scriptures teach about the Holy Spirit. Now, you're probably wondering where we're going in this series from today. Uh, remember, this is part of a larger study in 1 Thessalonians, and I want to get back to 1 Thessalonians eventually. I'm thinking maybe two or three sermons on the Spirit before we get back into the text of 1 Thessalonians. I'd really like to talk about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and also about the Spirit's works of preservation and bearing fruit. This is not a full-scale study of the Holy Spirit and everything that he does, uh, though I confess I'm tempted to keep going. I do want to show you something, however, before we keep going. I'm going to read to you a list of 40 different ministries that the Holy Spirit performs in all believers or that we should pursue. Now, this is going to be a long list, but it's on purpose like this. I, I want to read this to you for a couple of reasons. First, it's highly likely that you don't realize how much the New Testament has to say about the Holy Spirit. I'll confess I did not realize how much the New Testament has to say about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and reading through this list, hopefully you'll be like, wow, there is actually an awful lot in here that I should probably study on my own. And, and perhaps this list will whet your appetite to learn more. The other reason I want to show you this list is to show you the way in which really the entirety of the Christian life is to be lived in the power of the Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is not just this like little sliver thing that uh, you know, comes up only on Sundays or something like that. No, as you'll see from this list, we are to work and speak and love and, and learn how to raise our kids and love our spouse and work our job and really to do everything in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
One last thing about this list, I, I did create it, and I used a simple concordance search. What that means is a couple of things. First, there are probably additional ministries that I missed. You know, I just uh, basically Googled Spirit, Holy Spirit, something like that. There are probably other passages that use different terms that are still talking about additional ministries. These are just 40 that I was able to pull together. What's more, I was very careful to not include stuff that's like apostolic gifts. You know, as I read the Bible, there are apostolic gifts that not all Christians should be exercising or pursuing. So these were ones I was careful to say. These, these are things that all Christians, you know, if you and I trust in Jesus, these are things that we ought to either experience or pursue. Well, here we go. 40 different ministries of the Spirit all believers in Jesus already enjoy or should seek to experience. Here we go. All Christians are called to trust Jesus by the Spirit. We're washed, sanctified, justified by the Spirit. We've been regenerated by the Spirit. We were, past tense, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We should be assured of our salvation by the testimony of the Spirit. We've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit. We participate in or share in the Spirit. We're to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. We're to love in the Spirit. We can be resolved in the Spirit. We're to speak in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, rejoice in the Holy Spirit. We're to experience the power of the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. We can be constrained by the Spirit, pardon me, comforted by the Spirit, forbidden by the Holy Spirit. We're to serve in the Spirit, not resist the Spirit, not grieve the Spirit, not quench the Spirit. We're to abound in hope by the Holy Spirit. We're to conquer sinful fear by the Spirit. Live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, worship by the Spirit, keep in step by the Spirit. We're to be strengthened by His Spirit, maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're to bear witness to the gospel by the Holy Spirit. We're called, some of us, into Christian ministry by the Holy Spirit. We're to guard the gospel by the Holy Spirit, preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit, and bear the fruit of the Spirit. And again, there are probably more that I missed. But isn't that amazing? I mean, I did not realize how much the New Testament talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, let me quickly recommend to you a few books. I imagine maybe something on that list caught your attention and you'd like to learn more. If you'd like to do more study on this topic on your own, let me give you three quick books. The first is a brief booklet by R.C. Sproul called Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? As you can see, it's only 72 pages. Um, probably doesn't go much deeper than we've gone in this series, but it's a great way to introduce yourself to who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. That's Who is the Holy Spirit by R.C. Sproul. The second book I'd recommend is by Charles Ryrie. It's called Just the Holy Spirit. And as you can see, it's 210 pages, so maybe a step beyond this series, kind of like maybe college level. And I don't know if you've ever read anything by Charles Ryrie, but his great gift was clarity. I mean, he almost could not be unclear if he wanted to, which is really helpful as a teacher. Uh, so if you want a really clear, helpful, kind of intermediate study of the Holy Spirit, check out The Holy Spirit by Charles Ryrie. The last book I'd recommend is a huge book. Um, it's called The Coming of the Holy Spirit, 482 pages. Now, this is like a comprehensive study of the Holy Spirit. If, you, if you've got any question at all, this book will probably address it. The nice thing about this book is that you don't need to read the entire thing. You know, let's just say you're interested in one of those ministries that was on that list. You know, what, what does it mean to love in the Holy Spirit? You can just read the pages on that in this book without reading the entire thing. But if you do pick it up, and it's in our church library, by the way, it's, it's big. It's like almost the size of your Bible. Um, it, but again, it'll talk about pretty much every question you have on the Holy Spirit. Any of those three would be helpful resources if you'd like to learn more about the Holy Spirit's person and work. Now, like I said, today we're talking about the Spirit's work as sealing. Uh, what is that, and what's that all about? 
Let's talk first about the significance of sealing. I'm not talking here about the Spirit's sealing, but just sealing in general. Obviously, the sealing of the Spirit assumes we understand a bit about sealing and its significance, so let's begin there. What is the significance of sealing? Now, I find it rather fascinating that throughout history, people of very different cultures practiced a form of sealing. Cultures that had really nothing to do with one another, they weren't like organically connected, nonetheless, they sealed things. And I kind of wonder if God imprinted this on our consciences so that we then have categories to make sense of the Holy Spirit's sealing. When you seal something, it typically goes like this. You take this object uh, that you're sealing, and then you, ex- you press some sort of external mark into it. It could be in melted wax, could be in soft clay, could be a stamp with like ink, uh, could even be in soft metal. There are instances where you've got lead that's soft and they kind of heat it up a little bit and press it into that. But regardless, this visible external mark is pressed into an object, sealing it. Now, in addition to that, it's, it was actually common to enclose something in something else and then seal it. You know, you might put it in an envelope, put it in a chest, put it in a tomb, and then put the seal on that, kind of locking it in there. Now, usually the seal carried the insignia and the authority of the one doing the sealing. It could be a king, emperor, governor, whatever. And sometimes we've got some of these seals. I mean, you can Google them, Google them if you want. They'd often have the initials of the emperor or even sometimes the picture, like carved, tiny, of his face. And that would be pressed into the object. And the idea was this object is protected by the authority of the one doing the sealing. You don't mess with this unless you want to mess with the guy who's doing the sealing. You know, let's say I, I found this letter and it's got the seal of Caesar Augustus on it. If I open that and that's not addressed to me, you know, I break the seal, that was like a criminal offense in the Roman Empire. And you could even get killed if you broke a seal without proper authority. Now, when we turn to Scripture, I was quite surprised by how often sealing comes up in Scripture. Uh, Maybe search this on your own. You know, look up the words sealed, sealing, seal, something like that. There are dozens of Bible verses talking about this. I think, again, God wanted us to get this concept clear, just the ordinary concept of sealing, so that the sealing of the Spirit would make sense. Let me read you just a few Bible verses that allude to sealing. This is, again, not talking about the Holy Spirit sealing, but just sealing in general. And and notice what they say about the authority of the one doing the sealing and the consequences if you break the seal. 1 Kings 21.8 She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived within Naboth in his city. Esther 8.8 You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Daniel 6.17 A stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. One last one. Matthew 27.66 They went and made the tomb secure by, by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Are you getting a feel for how seals function in Scripture? Now, sealing today, it's not as common as it once was, but we still do it from time to time. Uh, like I mentioned, our wedding license was sealed, and probably yours was too. Have you ever been to, say, a notary or a republic, and, and they had to seal an important document? I've done that several times. Uh, sometimes we do this in a less formal way. Say you've got a letter, and you don't want anybody to, like, steam it open. You write your signature across the flap of the envelope. You ever done that? I've even seen kids put stickers on the envelope flap to keep them shut. That's kind of a primitive form of sealing. Now, again, in all of this sealing, things are being communicated. Specifically, importance and belonging. 
And so sealing communicates importance and belonging. I mean, you probably didn't seal up your trash bags before you threw them in the trash can, did you? No, none of us did that because it's not important. But you do seal things that are important. Additionally, the thing belongs to you. If you, if you seal something, you, you better not mess with this if you don't have the right authority. Keep those principles in mind because they're going to come up later when we talk about the sealing of the Spirit. Well, let's move on now and talk about the sealing of the Spirit. What is the significance of the Holy Spirit's sealing of believers? Why is this a big deal? Why are we talking about this this morning? What's the significance of the Holy Spirit's sealing of believers? Now, the concept of the sealing of the Spirit, it's found in three different passages. And we're going to look at each of these briefly to see what they teach us about the sealing ministry of the Spirit. The first of these is 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, we read this. And it is God who has established us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Now pause there just for a real quick second. You see that word anointed? We don't have time to spend an entire sermon talking about this, but the Bible is clear that all believers have been anointed by the Holy Spirit the second they believe. In the words of 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know the truth. The only reason I bring that up is because from time to time you will hear other believers talk about this anointing as something you experience after you're saved. Uh, like sometimes several years after you were saved. Uh, maybe when you get baptized or when you speak in tongues or when they lay hands on you, something like that. Uh, that's when you're anointed. Uh, understand the Bible does not talk that way. That's confusing. All believers are anointed by the Holy Spirit the second they believe. What's more, and this is more common in our kinds of circles, you from time to time hear people talk about an anointed preacher, an anointed Bible teacher. You ever hear, I confess I've talked this way myself before. Uh, usually by that, what we mean is that this preacher, this teacher has a particularly fruitful ministry. Again, that's simply not the way the Bible uses this term anointed, and it's confusing. Let's commit to using Bible words in Bible ways. And again, the Bible is emphatic that all believers are anointed the second they trust in the anointed one, Jesus. Well, coming back to our text, let me read it again. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, a few things I'd like you to notice. First, in this passage, who is the one doing the sealing? Did you catch it? Who seals? It's clearly God the Father. It says, God who has established us with you in Christ has anointed us and has put his seal on us. Remember that? That'll come up later. Second, who are those who are sealed? It's not just Paul, but whom? The believers in Corinth. And if you look at the parallelism, look at the parallelism here. These folks are in Christ, they've been anointed, and God's Spirit lives in their hearts, indicating that it's describing the same group. Now, part of the reason I bring this up is because, like I've mentioned before, the Corinthian believers were not particularly godly. Uh, you know, if you read First and Second Corinthians, they were actually downright scoundrels. Some were visiting prostitutes, they were taking one another to court, uh, some were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, I mean, real scoundrels. And yet, nonetheless, they were all in Christ, indwelt by God's Spirit, and sealed by God's Spirit. What this indicates is that this sealing experience, whatever it is, it can't be something only for super-Christians. Or it can't be the second experience that we seek. It must take place as part of that salvation package when we trust Jesus. Last thing I want you to notice on this passage, look at that word guarantee. He has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now this idea of the guarantee is going to come up later in another passage, uh, but just notice it now and imagine what might the spirit be a guarantee of, a promise of. That's the first passage. The second passage which speaks of the sealing of the Spirit is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. 
In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, bring that up if you would, it's, we read this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, quickly, a few things. First, notice when we were sealed. This passage makes it emphatic. When you heard the word of, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. This confirms what we suspected about 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, it was kind of only alluded to. Here, it's emphatic. That second you hear the gospel and believe, that's when you're sealed. Second thing, unlike the 2 Corinthians passage, this passage tells us exactly what the Spirit is a guarantee of. Paul says he's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, this theme of the inheritance that we have in Jesus, this is a massive topic that we don't have time to develop fully now. I'd actually encourage you to study this more on your own. But suffice it to say, when we trust in Jesus, it's not just that our sins are forgiven. And it's not just that we have the sure and certain hope of heaven. We become heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus. We're, in a way, princes and princesses in God's kingdom. One day we will reign over angels. I mean, it's an incredibly exalted state. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessings, already citizens of heaven, already owners of infinite priceless riches. In the words of 1 Peter 1.4, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we're already heirs, but like Peter alludes to here, the majority of that inheritance is waiting us, awaiting us in heaven. I mean, again, there's so much to thank God for that we enjoy in this life, forgiveness of sins, justification by faith, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the church family, all of those we enjoy here and now. But the bulk of our inheritance we won't receive until we stand before God, either by death or when Jesus comes again. But here's the thing. The Spirit is the guarantee that we'll eventually get the entire thing. Okay, we're going we're to talk about this more later on, but just keep this in the back of your mind. If you've got the Spirit now, that's a guarantee, that's a promise that you will one day enjoy the entirety of the inheritance. Well, the final passage talking about the sealing of the Spirit is Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30, we read this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, a few things to consider. First, that phrase, do not grieve the Spirit of God, increasingly that, that, that phrase gets me. Um, I remember there were times that I would disappoint my parents, and it would really hurt. You know, you ever done that? Remember back to high school when you were so foolish, and you, know, you did dumb things that you wish you had never done, and you, you discover that your parents are disappointed in just the way that it shocks you and kind of cuts you to, your, to the heart. You ever been there? Uh, that, that's a terrifying experience, but realize we can do something analogous to the Holy Spirit by our sin, by our, say, looking at something on the internet that we should not look at, watching something on TV that we shouldn't watch, uh, the way that we speak to our spouse, speak to our kids, speak to our parents. If we cut corners at work, that actually brings grief into the heart of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if we're bothered by disappointing our parents, how much more bothered ought we to be by disappointing the Holy Spirit who dwells in us? Uh, let these thoughts sort of percolate in your soul, brothers and sisters. They, they can motivate you to greater watchfulness and a desire for greater holiness. But coming back to Ephesians 4 and what it teaches us about the sealing of the Spirit, again, we see the way that the Father is the one who seals us. You see that? This confirms, again, what we saw in 2 Corinthians and here we've got a pointer to the duration of this sealing. How long will it last? I mean, is it something that can be lost? What does he say? By whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. What's the day of redemption? 
The Bible's pretty clear that the day of redemption is that day when we see Jesus. Again, either by Jesus coming or by our death. But when we stand before him, that's the day of redemption. And this sealing's going to last until then. Sort of keep some of these threads in mind because we're going to come back to them later. Now let's pull these threads together. What have we learned from these three passages about the sealing of the Spirit? Well, first, we've seen the way in which God the Father is the one who does the sealing, and all believers are those who are sealed. Moreover, this sealing takes place the nanosecond, we believe, and it's a guarantee of that inheritance that we have in Christ. And lastly, this seal will be on us until we make it safely to the day of redemption, to that day when we stand before Jesus. Does that seem like a fairly accurate summary of what we've seen? Now, I want to come back to something I brought up earlier. Seals are meant to communicate things. I mean, that's their entire point. When, say, Darius or Caesar or the county clerk, when they seal something, that's to communicate to those who see the seal. This object, this person, this thing, it belongs to me and it's under my authority. Am I right? Paul ends as a helpful discussion of the sealing of the Spirit in his handbook of theology. He writes this, The principal idea of sealing is that of ownership. The believer is sealed with the Spirit to identify the believer as belonging to God. Branding cattle would be a parallel. The rancher puts his brand on the steer as a sign that the steer belongs to him. God has put his seal, the Holy Spirit, within the believer to verify that the believer belongs to him. Now, all of that is true and wonderful, but again, here's the thing. We can't see the sealing. You know, I can't just look out on, on you, the congregation, and say, okay, that person's sealed, that person's not. That person's sealed. We, we can't see this. What's more, the sealing of the Spirit, it's not something that we perceive or feel with our bodily senses. You know, it's not like you got zapped when you got sealed. You know, if you brand a cow, you know, he's going to kick a little bit. Uh, that did not happen when we were sealed with the Spirit. But if you're trusting in Jesus, you have been, past tense, sealed. So, so what's going on here? If I can't see it, I can't feel it. If others can't see it, can't feel it, what's its point? What's it, to whom is it communicating? Just as a quick aside, what we're talking about here is a reminder that the most important things about us are those invisible things. And I think most people believe this deep down, though we don't always live that way. The most important things about you are those invisible things. We tend to think that the most important things about us are those things that we can see and feel and touch, our height, our weight, our hair color, eye color, skin color. Those are the things that make us important in the world. Realize man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And in God's sight, the most important things about you are those invisible things. Are your sins forgiven? Is your name written in heaven? Is your life characterized by faith, hope, and love? Those things are infinitely more important than, say, your hair color or your height or weight. What's more, realize that part of growing as a Christian is learning to think this way, to assess other people, evaluate other people, not on the basis of their external appearance, but on the basis of their heart. For instance, a handsome, clean-cut, smiling, young Mormon man standing at your door with a white shirt on and a nice dark tie, he is a deceived-by-Satan soul zombie desiring to lead your soul to hell. At the same time, this really rough-looking former prisoner, or even current prisoner, covered with tattoos, who just trusted in Jesus, or, or maybe an 80-year-old who's in the final throes of cancer, who's trusting in Jesus... They have been indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, sealed by God's Holy Spirit, and they are your beloved brother or sister, regardless of their external appearance. Let's, brothers and sisters, train ourselves to look at people the way that God looks at them, not on the basis of their external appearance, but on the basis of their heart. 
Well, coming back to the whole discussion of the sealing of the Spirit, if I can't see it, if I didn't feel it, how then do I know it happened? This is just one more way where we walk by faith and not by sight. If the Bible says all believers have been sealed, and if I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus, then I have been sealed, again, even if I never even heard of this concept until this morning. And realize this is the pattern of so much of the Christian life. I don't base my realities on what I feel, but on the truth of God's word. If you get that, that, that will just like blow up your worldview. I mean, the, the current worldview of our culture is what I feel is real. What I feel about me is my identity. The Bible is going to teach totally opposite. Your feelings can be so messed up, so distorted. I mean, they can be affected by eating a, a, a rotten taco. I mean, they can be really messed up. No, what determines reality is the Word of God. So if God's Word says something, I take that by faith and believe that that's reality regardless of how I feel. You following me? Now, I keep coming back to this question, but to whom is the sealing supposed to communicate? Again, if we humans can't see it, what's the point? Well, i got a theory here, and it's this. I've come to believe that the sealing of the Spirit is not primarily for the benefit of other humans, either believers or unbelievers. No, I think ultimately the sealing of the Spirit is designed to communicate something to the devil and his angels. The devil and the angels, they, they can see the invisible things that we can't see. And when they see the seal of the Most High God on somebody, that seal says to them, don't mess with that person. Don't afflict that person. That person belongs to me, and I'm going to use all the powers of heaven to defend that person and to come to that person's aid. It actually kind of reminds me of the seal that God set on Cain back in Genesis 4. You'll remember this. Cain kills Abel, and Cain says, if anybody finds me, they're going to kill me. But remember what God did? Genesis 4.15. The Lord said to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. I mean, if God did that for wicked Cain, the murderer, would he do anything less for the children that he loves? You might not realize this, but this entire world is absolutely infested with demons. Am I trying to scare you? Yeah, because that's reality. This entire world is infested with demons. At this very moment, hundreds of thousands of demons, all over, and there are probably some in this room. These demons, they are powerful, they are intelligent, and they are hell-bent on destroying and damning as many of us as possible. They do everything in their power to tempt, afflict, oppress, torment, and drag people to hell. And get this, they are always watching you. Far more than our government is. They are always watching you, always plotting against you. They know your weaknesses. They know what catches your eye. They know what gets your heart beaten quicker. They know what raises your blood pressure. And they're working right now to cook up temptations that are perfect for you, temptations that'll get you right where you're weakest, right where your armor's got a little chink in it. Imagine our world that way, infested with thousands of bloodthirsty, soul-thirsty demons who've got more physical strength than a thousand armies, that are more persuasive and slick than any snake oil salesman. And, and when you look at life that way, that's a terrifying thought. So what is going to protect us? What's going to guard us in such a world? Well, if we've been sealed by God's Spirit, then Almighty God is saying to the devil, that person belongs to me. And because of that, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. If you've been sealed by God's spirit, the Lord of hosts is saying to the prince of darkness, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, she is my child. And because of that, 1 John 5.18, the Lord protects him and the evil one does not touch him. 
This is just one of the huge benefits of being sealed by God's Spirit, and this is something that we should thank God for every day. Now, does this mean that Satan never tempts a believer, or that the demons never afflict a believer? Of course not. They do their best every single day, and sometimes they tempt and afflict severely. Satan's always going about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And these temptations, these afflictions, they can produce incredible suffering. I mean, just ask Job. But at the same time, that seal of the Spirit, it guards the believer so that two things. First, Satan can't do anything to you without God's permission. But second, whatever God allows Satan to do to you, God in his sovereignty is going to work for his glory and your good. And again, you can see that in the story of Job. Now, if all of this is true, what then must we say to non-Christians, to unbelievers, to those who have not yet been sealed by the Spirit? And I know that some of you are in that category. Then what we must say is that there is absolutely nothing protecting you from Satan and his demons. You're standing there before them completely naked, completely defenseless. This world is infested with them, and there is absolutely nothing you can do to stop their attacks. If you're currently outside of Jesus, not sealed by the Holy Spirit, come to Jesus immediately, like right now. You'll be instantly forgiven of your sins, instantly indwelt by God's Spirit, and instantly sealed by God's Spirit. And then you'll have that seal on your soul, warning the devil, do not mess with this person. Do not mess with this person or I'll come after you with all my power. Come to Jesus today. That's just a little bit on the significance of the Holy Spirit's sealing. I'd encourage you to study it more. Let's talk lastly. How does the Spirit's sealing guarantee the permanence of our salvation? How does the Spirit's sealing guarantee the permanence of our salvation? Now, as I imagine you know, several Christian denominations and churches teach that the salvation of the believer is not permanent. Methodists, Wesleyans, Lutherans, Free Will Baptists, Nazarenes, most Pentecostals, several other groups, they teach that you can be saved by faith alone today and maybe saved for several years, but then lose your faith, lose your salvation, and ultimately go to hell. A person can be saved and then lost again. Are you familiar with this? Realize this teaching, while, while I think many of those who believe in it are true Christians, it does produce incredible anxiety, insecurity, and fear among those who believe it. Now, there are many different ways that you can show that the idea that a believer can be lost, that that's wrong, that that's unbiblical, many ways to argue that. You could talk about the way in which all believers are chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, and that all those whom God predestined, he will one day glorify. We could talk about Romans 8 and the way in which nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, neither angels, demons, heaven, or hell. We could talk about the doctrines of the perseverance of the saints, or even better, the preservation of the saints. All of those are effective, fruitful ways to show that believers cannot lose their salvation. But in my experience, one of the clearer and more persuasive ways to talk about the permanence of our salvation is actually connected to this whole idea of the permanence, or pardon me, the feeling of the Spirit. And it goes back to that idea of the sealing functioning as a guarantee. Remember we talked about this? Look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 again. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, call it that verse if you would, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now really zero in on that word guarantee. 
This word is translated differently in different translations, but the idea is the same in all of them. For example, the King James translates this earnest. You ever heard of earnest money? Another translation calls it the down payment. Another translation calls it the security deposit. In the original Greek, the idea referred to this initial sum that I paid on promise that I'm going to buy the entire piece of property. Now, let's say there's this portion of 80 acres, and I can't, I can't give you the entire money right now. I give you the down payment, the security deposit, on promise that I'm eventually going to buy the entire thing. You following me? Actually, there are places where this same word is used of an engagement ring. Now, if you've ever purchased a house, you understand how the down payment functions. Again, you pay it to sort of secure this house. But what happens if I then renege on my promise? You know, I put down the down payment, but then for whatever reason, I can't give it the rest of the money. What, ha- what happens to the down payment? I lose it. You follow me? Now, if the spirit is the security deposit, if the spirit is the guarantee, what then are we saying if we can lose our salvation? Let me see if I can illustrate this. And again, I've got my amazing computer animations that obviously I'm gifted at this. You know, I, I should quit being a pastor and become a computer animator. Not really. But anyway, let's pretend that represents you and me, individuals. What we're saying in this sermon is that the second we trust in Jesus, we are sealed by God's Spirit. And that seal, one of the things that it does, it functions as a security deposit, a guarantee of our our inheritance. Okay, you with me so far? Now, like we've talked about in other sermons, the Spirit is actually one of three members of the Trinity. You've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, just imagine this. If the Spirit is the down payment, and if you lose the down payment, if you renege on the promise, what are we saying about the Trinity? We're basically saying that for a Christian to lose his or her salvation, the entire trinity needs to be fractured. Now, no true Christian is going to say that, including those who believe you can lose your salvation, but I think we need to think through the implications of what we profess. If we're saying that you can lose the down payment, that says some kind of scary things about the unity of the trinity, which we don't want to say. Now, think through how all of this applies to us. If I'm a weak, inconsistent Christian, even on my best day, which truth be told is all of us, how in the world am I going to believe that I'm going to make it to the very end? Especially if I've got 20, 30, 40 years left, why in the world would I believe I'm just going to stick it out and not abandon Jesus for that period of time? Well, here's the thing. The confidence that I'm going to persevere is not found in me and my resources. It's not found in me and my strength. No, it's only and entirely in the promises of God. And one of the thousands of promises that God has made to his children is that all of those who have been saved are sealed, and all of those who are sealed will be sealed until the day of redemption. It's God who will preserve you. I know we often talk about the perseverance of the saints. It's better to talk about the preservation of the saints because that puts the emphasis on God. God will protect you. God will preserve you. God will keep you from stumbling. And that will be not by your might or your power, but by God's Spirit, says the Lord. I ask you, are you confident right now that you've been born again? Do do you know that you have God's Spirit dwelling within you? That you have been sealed by God's Spirit? Are you confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus? Realize God wants you to live in the joy and the confidence of all of those things. And if you're not confident of those things this morning, commit to making it right. Commit to talk to to whomever you need to talk, study whatever you need to study, so that eventually you can say with 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life. 
That's just a little bit about the Holy Spirit's sealing and the way in which it guarantees the permanence of our salvation. Now, to wrap up our time this morning, I want to again address those of you who might be here today and you are not Christians. You're not trusting in Jesus. If that's the case, we're delighted you're here. Thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. But if you've not yet turned from your sins and embraced Jesus, and therefore not yet been indwelt by the Spirit and sealed by the Spirit, do you grasp at all the incredibly precarious position you stand in? You are right now alienated from God. You are right now easy prey for the devil. And unless you turn from sin and embrace the Lord Jesus, you will die in your sins and be eternally lost. But here's the glorious message of Christianity. God is offering you a gift, a completely free gift. It's actually a package of gifts. This package of gifts, it includes full forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, even future. This package of gifts, it includes the sure and certain hope of heaven. It includes the indwelling Holy Spirit, a new nature, a new heart, the church of God as a family, new desires, a new beginning, a new start, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, all of that and so much more offered to you as a completely free gift if you'll but trust in the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us that you were made to know God. This is why you exist. Not just to have fun playing video games and watching YouTube and goofing off, to know the almighty maker of heaven and earth, to be his friend. That's why we exist. And yet the reality of it is we have sinned. We've rebelled against God. We've tried to live our own way without any regard to how God designed it to be lived. How do we rebel, you wonder? A million different ways. We tell lies. You ever been there? We get lazy at work. We're mean to our coworkers, mean to our siblings, mean to our parents. We gossip and slander. We destroy people's reputations. We abuse and misuse our sexuality for self-indulgent purposes. I mean, it doesn't take much creativity to imagine it, but we're guilty of breaking thousands of God's commands every single day. And realize one breaking of God's laws makes you a rebel. If one act of disobedience earns me eternal condemnation, what then do all of us deserve for our thousands of acts of disobedience? Now, God is a righteous God, a holy God, and because of that, he will punish us for our sins. He will pour out his wrath on us for our sins, somewhat in this life to try to wake us up, but far, far worse in the life to come. And unless we are forgiven, unless we have a Savior, unless we're reconciled to our Creator, we will suffer the wrath of God eternally in that real place called hell. And yet under those dire circumstances, God, in his great love, he still loved us. And God took the initiative to heal and to restore the relationship we destroyed. He did this by lovingly providing a Savior, a Savior for all of us, a Savior who is his own Son. God the Father sent God the Son down to earth. God the Son took on flesh and blood, born as a little baby to the Virgin Mary, given the name Jesus, fully God, fully man, in one person. And Jesus grew up and lived the life of perfect trust in, perfect obedience that we should have lived. But then, as, of, as you've probably heard, Jesus died a horrifying death. In his mid-30s, he's arrested, he's nailed on a cross, and on that cross, he suffers and dies. And what the Bible tells us is that on that cross, he is bearing the wrath of God in the place of sinners. This is how God can remain holy and just while forgiving rebels. Jesus dies in our place, satisfying the justice of God, the wrath of God, absorbs it entirely for the sins of all of those who would ever trust in him. Three days later, God the Father raises Jesus from the dead to testify that what I'm teaching you this morning is true. 
Jesus ascends to heaven where he then pours out his Holy Spirit. And it's in response to all of that that, again, he's offering you this free gift. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Be saved. Trust in Jesus. Be forgiven. Trust in Jesus. Experience the Holy Spirit coming into your life, sealing you, transforming you, preserving you under the day of redemption. This is why Jesus came down to earth, to reconcile us to God and to forgive us of our sins. And all of that and so much more is offered to you as a completely free gift, if you'll but trust Jesus today. So come to Jesus now. Right where you are, come to Jesus now. Stop running from God. Stop marching to the tune of your own drummer. Embrace Jesus' loving leadership. Rely on his death and resurrection. Be made right with your creator. Enter back into that friendship with God you were created for. As always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me at the door after the service. I'll be there to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus as your Savior today, and today receive that incredible package of gifts, freely by grace, including the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so, so good. Lord, we are so sinful. Uh, Lord, even the fact that we're not more moved by your love uh, shows how sinful we are. Lord, thank you for how patient you are with us, giving most of us years, decades to repent and come to you. Thank you for the way that uh, your spirit is at work, convicting, drawing. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for the way that Jesus has come to be the Savior of the world and for the way that through his death and resurrection he is the Savior of the world. Lord, we pray right now for any within the hearing of my voice who have not yet put their hope in Jesus that right now they would. they turn and believe. For those of us who have believed, Lord, give us assurance, confidence that our sins have been taken away and that we are sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.